How many uh, are familiar with the word eschatology? Eschatology is the, the study of end things, end times. So when, when you hear the word eschatology, it's got to do with the end of times. And if you've been in the church very long, it's got to be probably the most debatable topic that there is. You know, what's going to happen? When's it going to happen? What's the sequence going to be? And, well, I would say early in my Christian life, I wasn't aware enough to even get a brain ache from it. But once I became mature enough to have some sense for that it's important, um, all I had was brain aches from it. It would just make my head hurt thinking about, and then you study and you read what somebody says, and, and they got a great argument for it, and then you study and you read what somebody else says that disagrees with this one, and they got a great argument for it, and it's just like, ugh. But I think I have a responsibility to come to a, a, a conclusion about end times and to teach it because it's a substantial part of the scriptures. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's all prophecy, but some of it has already been fulfilled. And probably for this week and next week, I want to just touch on end times. Now, I think I have an excellent broad picture, but there's subsets of the bigger end times picture that I don't have real depth in, and I'm not going to try to guess my way around the things that I'm not certain about. So I'll give you what I'm certain about. I'll explain to you a little bit about you know, the things that I'm, that I'm not so certain about. But you should have a, a strong, basic understanding of end times because it matters to you as a Christian and it matters to you as you interact with each other as Christians that you have a good understanding. And it, it turns out, like so many other topics in the scriptures, that um, the understanding of end times is like, remember when you were a kid and you um, got a coloring book maybe for your birthday and it was one of those dot to dot things? And you put your, your pencil or your crayon on number one, and then you moved it to two, and then you moved it to three, and to four, and to five. And as you're connecting the dots, you can start to get a picture, and you say, well, after a little while, it looks like a bunny rabbit. You know, and by the time you're done, it turns out it is a bunny rabbit, and you color it in. End times is, a, is the, to understand it is the process of connecting a lot, a lot, a lot of dots. Because it's in Ezekiel, and it's in... Uh, Daniel and it's in Revelation and it's in the Gospels and it's a spot here and a spot there and a spot here and a spot there and you have to be able to take all those things and put them together. I'd say probably only over the last six months have I had any confidence that if you come up to me and you said, Pat, tell me something about end times that I would have the confidence to answer your question at all. I, I feel pretty, pretty good right now, but some of this stuff, um, literally, I'm just learning in the last week as I'm preparing to to share this morning. So um, let me start with this. The time we're in right now is described as the end times. So after Jesus left and ascended to the Father, the Bible would describe now as end times. But biblically and from the teaching perspective, we would recognize that this, this is the end times, but it's called the church age. So right now we're in what's called the church age. Be, before Jesus came, there was no church. There was his peop, God's people, Israel, and the rest of the world, and Israel was to be uh, like a herald to the rest of the world as they surrendered themselves to God, and he provided for them everything that they would need. All the other peoples of the world would be drawn to the one true God through his people, Israel. Jesus came. 
He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was sacrificed for the sin of mankind. He was resurrected to life and then ultimately ascended. And depending on your perspective, there's two different perspectives of when the church was actually born. One would be in the end of the, the Gospel of John where it says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. Many people think that's the birth of the church. The other perspective would be on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon that upper room and they were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Either way, they're both 2,000, 2,040 days ago. doesn't matter. This is the church age. And the church age is marked by things like, uh, and I think you said this in one of the scriptures or one of the words you said, to seek and to save that which is lost, to destroy the works of the devil, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to teach those disciples to, to obey all that Jesus has commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The church age is about making Jesus known to the world so that when the end times come, his church will be full. Okay? All right. So the way I'm going to share with you the end times is sequentially. Now, some of these things happen almost exactly at the same time in the Bible, and it's hard to discern if one happens right before the other or vice versa. So I'll give them to you as best I know, but where they come together, it's really not that critical that we have a, a perfect understanding of the second before and the second after. So here we are in the church age. We are, you know what, let me start at the end and come back. Let me start here. Uh, Heather, First, Thess First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While we are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The day of the Lord is described, depends on the commentator you read, um, either as Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation period or Jesus coming prior to the tribulation period for the rapture of his church. Some say that the day of the Lord isn't a day at all, but it's a season of time that begins with the coming of the Lord. From my perspective, I think the day of the Lord is actually the day that he comes for his church before the tribulation period. And then it extends because he comes a second time in that sequence for judgment and to establish his kingdom. If it's true that the day of the Lord comes prior to the tribulation when he comes to bring home his church, then these scriptures are very important for us to be sober. Be sober means to be um, of a sound mind, conscious, aware, awake of what's coming so that we don't get surprised by it. Because when he comes for the church, he's going to come like a thief in the night. We're not going to know when he's coming. 
And if he had told us exactly how to know when he was coming, we would probably compromise until five minutes before that time and try to get it right in the last moment so that we could have the world and have Jesus together. But you can't have the world and have Jesus together. So he says that nobody knows. But that particular scripture from 1 Thessalonians quotes scriptures from Matthew 24 almost very similarly, which in Matthew 24 is speaking specifically to when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom and to judge the unrighteous. Important thing to know, and when this is all done, the important thing to know is to be ready, to have yourself standing in Christ Jesus so that when he comes, you're prepared and you're not disappointed. Okay, so that leads me to then the first event of end times prophecy is what um, what the church calls the rapture. Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word rapture, but the, but it describes clearly that there will be a rapture. The rapture is this. Jesus is going to return in the sky. He's coming back for his church. Uh, The dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be reconstituted, glorified, and joined to their souls and their spirits. Those alive who remain in Christ will be raised and glorified. All these will be with the Lord eternally. Now, that's just a quick overview. I'll give you the scriptures that give you a sense for this. Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 This first will give you a sense that the rapture is going to happen before because there's debate as to when the rapture will happen, when God is going to come and get his church. And uh, some people, most people, believe that it's going to happen prior to the tribulation time. Some people believe it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation time. There's actually the seven-year tribulation. Some of these might not be words you're familiar with until I actually share share them with you. There's going to be a time of shaking where God is going to shake everything that can be shaken. A last call, so to speak, or next to last call, so to speak, for the world to repent and give themselves to Jesus. The thing that's called the seven-year tribulation actually is in two pieces. The first three and a half years called tribulation. The last three and a half years called great tribulation, where everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So, just what Larkin said, amen, right, where you're going to know the truth is the truth. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, Jesus wrote these letters through John when he called him up to heaven in the spirit. And the apostle John, Jesus said, you know, pen down these letters, speak to this church, this church, this the seven churches in uh, Asia, which represent all of us in every church today. To the church of Philadelphia, he wrote this. This is part of what he wrote to them. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those that persevere into the end will spend eternity with Jesus. What he's saying here is that there's this shaking, this testing that's going to come to the whole world, and I am going to take you out. If you hold fast to the word of perseverance, excuse me, I'm going to take you out of the world before this testing comes. This is one of the most um, substantial scriptures that would indicate to us that the rapture of the church, that the taking up of the church is going to happen prior to this testing, this tribulation time that's going to happen over the world. Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So as Christians, we live in this broken, fallen, messed up world. We drag our flesh around with us every day with this cross over our shoulders so that we can deny our flesh and nail it to that cross, nail it to that cross. But we do it in this hope, this belief, this faith that Jesus is coming back. In, in John, I think it's chapter 14, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He says, uh, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to go away and leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back. I'm going to go to prepare for you a place, and I'm going to come back and get you to bring you to that place. So it's, it's, a, it's a discussion that looks like the Hebrew marriage ceremony. In the marriage ceremony, what happens is... Um, Two families would agree, you know, the, the husband's family and the wife's family would agree that the two of them would be married. And then the, the two of them would come together and the potential husband, the groom, would offer to the potential bride a glass of wine. She would take that glass of wine and then either drink from it or give it back to him. If she gives it back to him, she's saying, I don't want to be your wife. If she drinks from the glass, she's saying to him, that I agree to be your wife, and at that point they would be what's called betrothed. It's similar to what we would call engaged, but it's more because you can get engaged in our culture and break off an engagement, but if you're betrothed in that culture, it requires a divorce decree to, to, to break you apart. The marriage hasn't been ultimately consummated yet. That's not to happen for another year. So what happens next is the, the bride drinks from the cup. She's agreed to be... Uh, the groom's wife, they're now betrothed. They've set apart. That's how Mary was when Jesus was born. She'd been betrothed to Joseph, but they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. That's why her being pregnant was such a, a horrible you know, social thing. So now the, the man goes away to his father's house, and the woman goes away to her father's house. And about one year would pass before they would ultimately have the wedding. What happens in that one year is that her attendants would prepare her for her groom. We're the bride in the story of Jesus. And as soon as we confess him and become born again, God places his spirit inside of us, and his spirit is akin to the bridal attendants that are preparing the bride for her groom. And the Holy Spirit is now inside of us, preparing us to be a perfect bride without spot or wrinkle presented to Jesus on the wedding day that is part of our end time study here. The groom, on the other hand, goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for his soon-to-be bride. And that's what Jesus said in John 14. He says, uh, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm, I'm not going away and not coming back because they've become betrothed. So he's then preparing a place in heaven. We have a place prepared for each of us in heaven, just perfect for us. So, so whatever is your idea... I guess I couldn't prove this biblically, but I, I, can, I can share experientially. A, a dear friend of ours was literally taken up to heaven. Jesus asked for more of her life than, than we would recognize giving in, in a typical Christian experience. And in the process of asking her for her life, I mean absolutely for her life, he showed her her place. And her place was her place. I mean it was everything that she could have ever dreamed of what would be her place. So I don't think that it's this, you know, this big giant um, public housing 
apartment building, you know, and, and it's cookie-cutter stamp, and everybody got the same thing, and the furniture's all the same, right? In, in Keys, there's going to be a whole bunch of fly-fishing poles and different things like that, maybe, and maybe there's a racquetball racket in mine. I don't know. But, there's, but it's going to be us because he created us uniquely, and he's preparing a place for us uniquely. So, so in this process of, of all this working itself out, what is happening is we're being prepared as bride for our groom, and our groom has prepared for us a place so that when he comes back, which is the rapture, he's going to come get us, and there's going to be a big banquet feast. Make sense? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's tough until that day, but it's beautiful. But our hope, the blessed hope is that he's coming back for us. We know he's coming back for us. He's faithful. We sang it. What a, how faithful he is because he's coming back for us. When he comes back for us, all this nonsense, all the battles, the spiritual battles, all that junk will be done. It'll be glory, 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 glory. Amen? Amen. Okay. Wow. Might get three weeks out of this one. <laughs> okay. So Revelation uh, chapter 3, Titus chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians four fifteen through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed or precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. So when Jesus comes with a big shout, we don't know when it's going to be, so we've got to be prepared for it. He comes with this big shout, and the first thing that happens is the dead in Christ. So, um, you know, your, your dear grandma, our son Joe, who died in the Lord a year and a half ago, Joe is in heaven to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Joe is in heaven spiritually with the Lord, but he doesn't have an eternal body yet. So when Jesus comes back for the rapture, those that are like Joe, that are dead in Christ, they're literally their bodies are going to be resurrected and glorified. Before, you know, in the funeral for Joe, I'm not big on spending thousands of dollars for a box to put a, a dead tent in. That's what, that's what the Bible calls it. It's an earthly tent. It's going to wear out. So we were going to have Joe cremated. But I got concerned, you know, if he gets cremated, what's going to get resurrected? So I asked some people that I trust, and they said, don't worry about it. What happens is there's a reconstituting, right? If somebody died 2,000 years ago, they're not much left of their body. They might as well have been cremated, right? They're just dust from dust to dust and ashes to ashes. So the, the dead in Christ, their bodies will be literally reconstituted and then glorified, and they will meet the Lord in the air. They will have their eternal bodies at the instant of the rapture. In the twinkle of an eye after that happens, those that are alive and remain, and that's interesting the way he describes it. He doesn't say those that, let me read it without remain. Um, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive until the coming of the Lord. And then later he says, then we who are alive will be caught up together with them. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, who are alive and remain. And when, when I think about that, I think it's a word about perseverance, right? If you're alive at the rapture, but you haven't remained in Christ Jesus, there's no rapture for you. It's those of us who are alive and have persevered, those of us who have overcome, who are continuing to overcome in the moment of the rapture, are going to be caught up to the Lord. And then, now, you know, I don't know how you feel about your body, having it eternally. I would pick a different one personally. I don't know what glorified looks like, so I'm sure it's going to be all right. But literally, those that are alive at the moment of the rapture are going to be caught up 
And then in the process of being caught up in the twinkle of an eye, the body will be glorified, eternally glorified. It'll be such that it's not corrupted any longer. It can be in the presence of the full glory of God and not cause you to die. The dead first, reconstituted, glorified with the Lord in an instant, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air, their bodies will be glorified, and they'll be with God forever. That's the rapture. That's the blessed hope that we're waiting on. Could happen anytime, literally anytime. We need to be prepared for it. We don't want to backslide. We don't want to make ourselves disqualified. We want to be in faith right up to the point where Jesus comes back for his church. Okay, last scripture on that on the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 53. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable in, inherit the imperishable. That was the comment around Teresa's word earlier today, that if, if the perishable, if the corrupted were to in, inherit the kingdom, it would have to die because it can't stand in the presence of the glory of God. Perishable cannot inherit the kingdom, only imperishable. That's glorified. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, you might think, well, heck yeah, everybody would know this, but this was, this was an amazing thought to me as I'm going through this stuff for the last few months. I, I remember going in the other room and saying, Teresa, do you ever think about this? Imagine right now the world is full of people. How many people? Six billion people? Seven billion people? Something like that. Some percentage of the people in the world are Christians. A second after the rapture happens, there are no Christians on this whole planet. There's not one Christian person. Now, maybe it's good to define what a Christian is. There are people, like, like if the rapture happened right now, you know, fortunately we'll be the only church in the whole world that this won't happen to, but other churches, heaven forbid, there might be a couple people left that aren't actually Christians. And they'd say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I go to church. That doesn't make you a Christian in my definition. My definition is a person who is a Christian is a person who's confessed Jesus as Lord, who's placed their trust in Jesus as Savior. In the sincerity of doing that, God has placed his spirit inside of them, and they are born again, new creatures in Christ. So there are people that can believe in Jesus, but they're not Christians. If they haven't met the criteria of the gospel, Holy Spirit's not inside there. When the rapture happens, they might have been in church their whole life from just being a little teeny, teeny baby doesn't make them a Christian. They haven't actually responded to the gospel. So there will be churches. If the, if the rapture happened on a Sunday morning in the Eastern time zone, there will be churches that all of a sudden will be almost empty. And in some of them, the pastor's still going to be there. You should just pray that won't be the case here, please. <laughs> because they're not Christians. They think they are, but they're not. So in that moment of the rapture, the world is void of Christians. None, zero. And that just blows my mind. Now, some are going to become Christians pretty quick, right? The pastor who's in the middle of his sermon and his congregation disappears, he's going to know what happened. And he's going to be like, uh-oh. He's looking to, his ticket didn't get punched because he wasn't a Christian. But you can bet your butt that guy's going to be a Christian in about two minutes because he knows the way. He just never was actually sincere in his heart. So it won't take long for there to be Christians, but it's going to be a hard time to be a Christian. Okay, that's the rapture. You have a sense for the rapture, right? Okay. I can't discern this exactly, but from my study, I think this probably has to be true. 
Immediately after the rapture is going to be what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 talks about this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So immediately upon the rapture, the best I can tell, but certainly sometime in that time frame, will be this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of us that are Christian, that are born again, will be raptured up and we will have this huge banquet, marriage party banquet. And in Hebrew times, like it lasted a week. So, I mean, it's a substantial banquet and party as the lamb receives the reward of his suffering, the saints, the people that got saved because of what he did. And there's a big, huge banquet, and there's food, and it doesn't mess with your eternal self, your, your new tent. So the next thing to happen is we have this marriage supper with the lamb. Following that, then, is the tribulation. And maybe I'll end here for today, and I have no notes on the tribulation, but you may have heard things like um, uh, the rise of the Antichrist and the beast and the three witnesses and all these different things, Gog and Magog and these battles and the earth is going to be shaken. What will happen? And I'll, I'll address the tribulation period at some point in detail, but quite frankly, I really do believe that the tribulation happens before, excuse me, the rapture happens before the tribulation. So we'll be watching it from heaven. It, it's not going to be something that we would um, participate in unless we happen to be one of those folks that thought they were a Christian but wasn't a Christian, in which case now you're damned to have to live through it if you can live through it because in the tribulation, the mark of the beast will be given to people. There will be no commerce that happens without the mark of the beast. There will be some, some way, I think it says on their arm or on their forehead, that they'll take the mark of this, this beast, this demonic Satan beast. And if you're uh, going to go to the grocery store and you have money, they are not allowed to sell you groceries unless you're marked as his person. Um, the Christians, the people that get saved during the tribulation will be hugely persecuted um, unto death. Many, many, many will be persecuted unto death during the tribulation. So if, in fact, the church goes and a person finds themselves not gone, then they, they are going to experience the tribulation. If they choose, then, to give themselves to Christ as Lord and Savior, they will be saved, but they're going to have to maintain Jesus as Lord and Savior until they're martyred or until the tribulation ends. And, and what's interesting... I'll give you just a little bit for next week. At the end of the tribulation, the seven-year period that's prophesied in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation and in the Gospels, maybe other places too, at the end of that time, what's also described is the second coming of Jesus. His first advent was when he came to give himself as Messiah. Debatable, depending on who you read the rapture, he's come. But at this end of the tribulation period, he, he literally comes from heaven on a white horse as a, as a warrior to establish his kingdom on earth. See, the Jews thought that that's what was happening when he announced himself the first time, that the kingdom 
they thought it was theirs, the kingdom of Israel, was going to be manifested in the way that, you know, Rome would be kicked out, there'd be no more oppressors, you know, we wouldn't be under anybody's thumb anymore. But that's not why he came the first time. The first time was to overcome sin. The second time is to establish his kingdom on the earth. So the seven years of tribulation happens. Some people in tribulation time are saved. Some of those that are saved are martyred. They're killed or they die, right? Their spirit goes to be with Jesus, just like it would if it happened now. Others don't choose Jesus. Then Jesus comes in the clouds on a white horse with his angels, his warriors, and this thing you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon happens. And Jesus wins. He establishes his kingdom on earth. In that moment of the end, the Battle of Armageddon, everyone that has not chosen to be a Christian during the tribulation time, which would be a very hard time to choose to be a Christian, every one of them is judged right now. Right in that moment, they're judged, and they're sent to hell. So, so now, people don't get judged until they die, right? You, you know, the world is judged already. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. But their, their judgment hasn't happened yet, but they're deposited in hell when they die because they still have an opportunity to repent and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. At the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, those folks that had not yet given their lives to Jesus will be judged and sent to hell immediately. So live people, well, they don't have the diapers. They're just going to go. The interesting thing then is Jesus brings back those that were raptured with him, those that died as Christians raptured up with him, come back. They have their glorified bodies. His reign now, his kingdom on earth is 1,000 years. At the start of the 1,000 years, who populates the earth? Only those people that got saved during the tribulation. Because the rest of us are going to rule and reign with Jesus during that time, but we're in our glorified bodies. We're not human beings, so to speak, anymore. So the only population, at the beginning of the rapture, the only population is people that aren't saved. At the end of the tribulation, the only people left on the earth are those that are saved. And then all of the population of the earth is populated from those people that got saved during the tribulation. God, I want to tell you more. <laughs> I love to, can I take just two more minutes and give you the big picture and I'll give you the detail next week? So now starts this 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Literally, he's king of the whole earth. He reigns from a throne in Jerusalem. There's a temple. 1,000 years, people are born. I don't honestly understand yet what happens to people in that 1,000 years. So let's say, you know, 100 years into the 1,000 years, they have a, a family has a child. The child's born, lives, dies, accepts Jesus, doesn't accept Jesus. I don't really understand how that works during what's called his millennial reign, the thousand-year reign. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Well, let me tell you more. At the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, Satan is bound up and he's cast into hell for a thousand years. So, so literally, while Jesus is on the earth, there is no demonic temptation. There's no satanic nothing. Because Satan is bound up. He has no access to the people. At the end of the thousand years, he's let out to tempt the nations. And in the tempting of the nations, if you can believe it, you've been living under the reign of Jesus Christ in the absence of demonic. The multitudes that will be deceived by Satan in that situation is like the sands of the sea, the Bible says. 
People are going to be deceived by Satan while they're under the millennial rule of Jesus Christ. So if you don't think that guy is deceptive, you've got to know he's good at what he does. And if you, if you don't heed the, the prophetic words that were given to us today about knowing his word, then you make yourself more vulnerable to deception. At the end of that time, it's a short time, fire will come from heaven and it will consume um, everybody that has chosen to deny God when Satan is released. They're going to go to hell. He goes to the lake of fire. Then comes judgment. Everybody who died outside of Christ, denying God, will be brought up. They will be judged. They will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire where they will be eternally tormented for their rebellion against God. The new heaven and the new earth will descend and eternity as we know it will be with God as the very light of the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, the new earth here where there will be no tears, no pain, no sorrow, nothing but the glory of God. Amen? Amen. All right, so that's the, that's the beginning and a little bit of detail, the whole thing in an outline form, and then the rest, the, the best I got, I'll, I'll patch it together for you next week, okay? All right, Father, thank you so... Oh, man, a clap. That's usually reserved for visitor preachers. Maybe the visitor clapped. Bless your heart. <laughs> Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the moving of your spirit. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you for the conviction that you've placed inside of us to heed your word. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will truly be your hands and your feet. This is the church age, and your church is to come in and be edified, to corporately worship, to build each other up, and then go out and be your church on the street, and, and be your love, be your conscience, be your power, demonstrating your kingdom. I pray that each and every one of us will do that, that your anointing will be on us, and that your name will be glorified. We pray that all in Jesus' name.